Hello and welcome back to Star Trek. It's it's another week. It's another Star Trek. I feel maybe I've, I'm overstepping my bounds here by welcoming people to Star Trek. This is, of course, subspace radio, but it feels like this is where you and I talk about Star Trek. This is where Star Trek happens in my week. Look, Star Trek is everybody and that Starfleet. Oh, God, I can't believe I just quoted Discovery. <laughs> we are here to talk about Star Trek Picard Season 3, Episode 5, Imposters, and especially to focus on the return of one Ro Laren. Look, as I've said many times in many weeks, my, my time in front of the screen watching Next Generation is minimal, and I am aware of the character of Ray within the Star Trek lore. I had no idea what happened to them. So this was a good introduction and also conclusion for yeah. this character. But I am hugely familiar with the work of Michelle Forbes. I adore her work as an actor. She's one of those quintessential jobbing actors who has never had any type of lead type role or developed enough of a following to be the figurehead of their own show, but have just popped up in shows and movies for decades, just working here and there and creating solid work. And I'm always a pleasure seeing her on screen. Yeah. In the second half of this episode, I will be educating Rob about Ro Laren, and Rob will be educating me about the further works of Michelle Forbes. I'm very excited to hear more about Ro Laren's work, and I'm very excited to share my favorites of Michelle Forbes's work. But first, something is very wrong with Jack Crusher, Rob. There is. He, uh, we open with a very violent scene, very much akin to earlier seasons of Picard or uh, yeah, Discovery. Yeah, this whole thing of someone imagines killing everyone on the bridge with a phaser, it's been done once or twice before, and I think they need to come up with another violent fantasy. And they used it a couple of times just in this episode. And again, let's show violence and the horrifying things of you. Oh, but guess what? It's just an illusion. It is until it isn't. Until yeah, yeah. But he was killing nothing but bad changelings, so that's okay. Yeah. But he didn't know at the time. <laughs> I'm reminded of there's there is this trope. I don't know what the name for it is, but this like seemingly civilized person who wrestles with just below the surface with a an ability to do violence yes. that threatens to come out at every moment. And then when it does come out, it saves the day and everyone is, is congratulating them, but they are horrified of what has been let out. And it is a beautiful, horrifying ending where she goes, how did you know? And he goes, I didn't. It's a really great moment of going, oh, okay. So it, it was just pure luck. And that... They looked at me wrong. <laughs> and serves them right too. So yeah, it was a um, ploy used of few too many times that's been used way too much recently but definitely in yeah. this episode it was the shock value was used and going all right okay let's just let's move on let's find something else yeah we finally return uh, back to what wharf and raffi are up to yeah that is the that feels like the it's probably split half and half again but the fact that they were completely absent previous episode makes me like lean into that story this week. Yeah, and, me too. And follow their pursuit of a way onto Daystrom Station. It does, like, this plot of um, of Rafi and Worf, like, trying to get to the bottom of things, it is starting to feel a little strung out. It could have been 
the first underworld contact they approached, the first person in Worf's little black book of names of people to go and shake down, could have been Sneed, who had all the answers. But no, it wasn't Sneed. It wasn't the next guy. It turned out to be a changeling. It's kind of the next guy, this mean Vulcan. Yeah, played. I've seen that actor around. He's very, very good. What's the? He's actor? good. Yeah. And the idea of a a Vulcan who has determined that organized crime is logical because yeah. a utopia cannot exist without it is interesting. It was a really interesting. Yeah, it was fully Bronx gangster Vulcan, which was weird to see, but worked. Mm. Crin is the name of the character. Crin, played by Kirk Achevedo. That's right. Very good. I've seen him around and stuff. I think I've seen him in some Law and Orders and stuff like that. I don't know if it was just the pointed ears, but he looked to me like a mean elf in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, something like from the early noughties Dungeons and Dragons. He had that, I'm so much better than you. And even if I wasn't, I'm immortal. So I got all the time. <laughs> exactly. In the world. Like exactly. He had that air about him. He was wearing an Idic pendant, which, uh, you know, is the infinite diversity and infinite combinations pendant, which infamously Spock wears in a season three episode of Star Trek, the original series, and Shatner and Nimoy refused to do the scene because they saw it as a cheap merchandising ploy. And they're like, I'm not going to wear this stupid thing. I'm certainly not going to spend five minutes talking about what it means and why the fans should buy one for 1995 right away. And uh, Roddenberry, who was pretty checked out from the series by that point, was called down to set to talk them into doing the scene and had to rewrite it on the spot to make it less... Less product placement. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That's a great little nugget of a story. I hadn't heard that. Mm. Yeah, I am getting that sense of... I did get that sense in this episode that, yeah, okay, I'm... I think it's the... It's poor Raffi as a character. Raffi is just not engaging for me at all. It's always been a struggle to make her feel relevant within this show. They've tried so hard to show how important she is and how much she means to Picard and how much I should be engaged in all this. It was a relief that I knew it was going to happen that finally the subplots of Worf and Picard have finally merged, but they're going, yeah, this is episode five. You could have got to this two episodes ago, really. Yeah. And I feel the same about Rafi. I wanted to get somewhere for her character and what I wrote down in my notes was some of the stuff of when she's sparring with Worf and she's like twirling the sticks and is starting to, she's starting to inhabit the persona of the, to jump franchises, the young Padawan, the <laughs> impatient cadet who's like, let's just go and kick their butts. And then the seasoned Jedi that is Worf goes, patience, young Padawan. There is a bit of that dynamic starting to happen. And I think Rafi could do worse than become a Luke Skywalker in the Star Trek universe. Mm. But she has had so many character shifts to this point yeah. that it's going to take a while before I believe anything from her. Well, that's the thing, if yeah. If she sticks with this, I think I could get there and enjoy her in that. But I need to feel like Worf needs her for something. Yeah, it does feel like she's just there because she's been kept over. And it, there's yeah. been so much character backstory and plot thrown in there, but nothing really substantially worked through. So I'm there going, who, who are you? I've seen you for two and a bit seasons and I still don't know who you are. It was telling to me that at one point in this episode, we were not watching Rafi. It turns out we were watching a holographic <laughs> simulation of Rafi, 
but no one could tell the difference. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I was pretty proud of myself. I did spot the mobile emitter on her arm oh, before well, before she was shot. And well done. I was like, well, are they both wearing mobile emitters? Ah, oh, they're probably like hiding away, and this is like the decoys. Uh, yeah. So I was, yes, I saw it. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, yeah, the shocking twist of, oh, she's killed Worf. No, she hasn't killed Worf. They're not going to kill Worf right now. <laughs> no one believed that. And of course, we get the beautiful lines of, I am bleeding quite profusely. I have <laughs> yeah, lost quite a lot great. of blood. Chamomile yeah. tea will not be able to heal this. This was a good day to die. This was a worthy death. And I was sitting there going, you deserve better than this wharf. This better not be real. This and Jess and I looked at each other and went, nah, he's no. not dead. No. They're gonna, they're, yeah, we've had the biggest disappointment of deaths. Oh, really? So Kirk just fell off a cliff. And that's his, <laughs> right. That's what his great death is. Okay. Yeah. I noted something that will delight you when they were looking up that Vulcan underworld boss's name in Worf's little black book. Right above him was listed Morn of Luria. Probably still at the bar. Yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, the biggest reveal of this one, a massive shock, is mm. the return of Roe into the canon. Now, I knew who she was because I knew that she appeared later on in the Star Trek series. So this was a big reveal. And this caused a lot of turmoil for Picard. And there seems, are they turning Picard into Kirk? Because he's becoming the dog of the universe. Like he's got his Romulan love. He's got his Beverly love. And now. I don't want you to misread it. There was never, they never went there with Ro. There is a scene before Ro appears in this episode where Picard tries to convince Jack Crusher to join Starfleet. Yes. In the hallway. And Jack goes, not for me. I'm not the Starfleet type. And Picard walks away, turns, almost said something, and then decides not to. Yeah. Not in those exact words, but that exact pattern occurred with Roe, where Roe had convinced herself she was not Starfleet material. She had been court-martialed and thrown into prison for disobeying orders and getting eight people killed on a away mission. And she was pulled out of prison by, as it turned out, a bad admiral who wanted her to go on a covert mission for him. Those damn bad admirals. And at the end of this adventure, Picard says, you should stick around, stay on the Enterprise. And she goes, oh, you got to be kidding. I'm not Starfleet material. And Picard gave her a pep talk of the best Starfleet officers I know are the ones who feel like Starfleet has as much to learn from them as they have to learn from Starfleet. And everything you feel you're missing can be learned. Give it a chance. This could be the thing you've been looking for in your life as you've been bouncing around through one misadventure to another. Right. And I love that that is there to discover on second viewing of this episode. Now that we are reminded of Roe, for those of us who lived with that character in the 90s, seeing Picard almost decide to attempt that with Jack, but decide not to, that is an echo of how Picard feels ultimately he failed with Roe. When she yes. chose to leave Starfleet and join the Maquis. Maquis. That was That is what broke Picard's heart. Not that there was a romantic flirtation there, although there was a... There were at times a little bit of chemistry and in a dark corner of a bar where they were pretending to negotiate her price as a prostitute as they exchanged Starfleet intelligence. There was a little bit of spiciness in the air between them, but uh, no, it was never anything more than that. So this is not a lost love of Picard's. This is 
a lost child of Picard. Right. Okay. How long was Roe on the show for? Just a season or was she there? For- she appeared in eight episodes, most of them in season five. And then she had one episode in season six and one final episode, the one immediately before the finale. Right. Season seven, episode 24, preemptive strike. Because I, I might be mistaken, but I think the intention was for Roe to be the Bajoran officer on D Space Nine. It might have made sense. Certainly, she is the proto-Kira Nerys. Yes. The damaged member of the Bajoran race from the Cardassian occupation. Mm. There isn't quite as much freedom fighter or rebel in Rose's background. She is much more just someone who grew up in the camps and whose father was tortured to death in front of her by Cardassians. And she is, she certainly bears the scars of the occupation, but if anything, she is someone who feels guilty about not fighting for her people. Whereas Mm. Kira chose to take up arms for her people. And fought most of her life actually. Yeah. Mm. So it was, it was a good bait and switch and I think they played it quite well. I don't know how you felt it, but I'm there going. Yeah. Cause they did the whole thing of she showed, she cut herself and then that inner cut with Beverly Crusher going, oh my gosh, they can keep the form, even the bloodline until. They keep doing this to me this season. Where <laughs> I know exactly what is happening. And then they make me believe the opposite just for a second. Yeah. Yeah, it's it was great. Like, in hindsight, I should never have believed that here in the final season of Star Trek Picard, when the promise to the fans is we're giving closure to all our favorite characters' stories, you bring back Ro. She's not going to be an imposter who you shoot down in the hallway and go, whew, Lucky that wasn't the real Roe. I guess she's still out there somewhere. Of course it was. You bring an actor back, you're going to bring back the real character. Yeah. We should have known that about Riker earlier in the season as well. That if, I mean, maybe you could believe that Riker would be revealed to be a changeling and then real Riker takes over. <laughs> um, but uh, when Michelle Forbes shows up, we should have done the math and gone, okay, she has to be real because nothing else would be satisfying. Mm. And yet- they managed to make us believe it. Or they, they got to me anyway. They got to me. They got to me. And it wasn't until she put the gun down in the bar. Mm. Remember, they went mm. back to the bar again. Oh, again with the bar. And a justification of, oh, we can, we can speak normally here. Yeah. Michelle Forbes is great. So yes. good. Incredible She stuff. has never given a bad performance. No. And all eight of her episodes are worth watching. They're all good episode amazing so because she's only in so few she's not just becomes a regular part she just pops in when she needs to have be a focus it's really interesting i would say that only her first episode and her last episode are truly like they required ensign row because they were about that character mm-hmm. yeah the first episode is her being pulled out of prison and going on this covert mission, but she's actually a double agent working for this bad admiral. And Picard brings her around. She decides to trust Picard. And then uh, Picard decides to trust her. And she stays on board the ship. And then she spends three seasons effectively being an ensign. She is Ensign Rolaren at that point. And five seasons in, all our other characters, all our other regulars had achieved a level of competence that it no longer felt possible for them to fail or sometimes even have flaws. 
So they started bringing in these like second tier of characters, Reginald Barkley, yes. Laren. They are two of a kind where they often appeared just sitting at a station on the bridge and had one line in an episode. And like some of her eight episodes, that is literally all she did. Right. Cause and effect, the time loop one we've talked about several times. She is at the con for that episode. She has a couple of lines over the intercom, but she does not play a core part in that. It feels somewhat luxurious to me to have an actor of Michelle <laughs> Forbes's caliber effectively playing bit parts in a number of episodes to maintain the continuity that of she her is presence there. on the yeah. ship. And then there are a number where she does play prominent parts and we'll talk about them in a minute. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Yeah, she really knocked it out of the park and there's great scenes with her and Patrick Stewart right near the end. Her ultimate demise is incredibly well done and her her performance is just stellar. Just Stella. And beautiful stuff about how intelligent the character is and the passing on of the Bajoran earpiece and what that means. That earpiece, for those who know, the very first appearance of Ro, she, she like beams in on the transporter platform and Riker is there to greet her and he is upset that a disgraced Starfleet officer has been assigned to the Enterprise. It is possibly the meanest we've ever seen Riker be greeting her. And she steps off the transporter platform and his first words to her are, you will follow Starfleet uniform code aboard this ship, Ensign. And she takes off her earring oh. and hands it to him. And that is the same earring that gets handed off in this final appearance. So beautiful bookend. Beautiful bookend. And of course that yeah. opens up. But that's the thing. Of course they use the ultimate return and ultimate sacrifice of a, a, a character to open up the door so that now war is in communication directly with our other heroes. I love that Rolaren was Worf's handler. And Worf knew. He he asks what happened to Rolaren. And yeah. For a second I thought it was like a recorded message. Went, no, they can see each other. Why yeah. aren't, why aren't they waving at each other? But yeah, that's where again, like with the previous episode, we gone, well, we're out now. There's still the mystery that needs to be solved. We need to repair the ship, but this chapter has come to an end. This one they're going. Now we've got all the pieces together. Let's move on to the next chapter of bring them all together mm. and stop this changeling scourge. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about Michelle Forbes outside of Star Trek, and then we'll come back to, to the rest of her story here. I was, I first became aware of Michelle Forbes from my favorite show when I was a kid growing up in the nineties, a show called Homicide Life on the Street, created by Barry Levinson and David Simon and Paul Antonetius. It was a revolutionary show in the early 90s where it didn't follow the cop procedural show of car chases and gunfights and um, why they wanted to create a show which is about day-to-day -day police work. So it's about investigation and about research and about confessions and interviews and it's an ensemble cast, incredible cast. The late, great Richard Beltzer got his start as John Munch, who he played for 23 years, who just recently passed away. Andre Brower, who's gone on to great success in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Michelle Leo, who's won an Oscar. Um, Yafit Koto, Ned Beatty, the list of actors go on and on. And around about season four, they were rejigging things. So some of the original cast were moving on. Ned Beatty was moving on. The show was 
constantly in this struggle. It was a revolutionary show. It was an ensemble cast. There was no two lead actors. Each episode would shift from one detective pairing to another. But through the course of its season, the longer it went, the network kept on wanting it to become more and more mainstream. So what made it so beautifully original was slowly eaten away. It was a death by a thousand cuts. So it limped along to seven seasons. And by the end of it, season seven looked nothing like what Homicide was. So in season four, they brought in a couple of new characters. They brought in Mike Kellerman, a young detective who worked in arson and came over to Homicide. And they introduced Dr. Juliana Cox. And she was the one who worked in the coroner's office, this young, rebellious chief medical examiner who conducted all the coroner reports and examined the bodies and gave all that information away. So they go, hey, doc, tell us what, what killed them. And her first appearance, she's riding really fast. This car's driving really fast, convertible, powering through. She's pulled over by a police officer on a bike. She gets a report and she says, I'm here to work in homicide and drives off. And, and, and gets her ticket and drives off. And her final episode when she leaves in season five or six, I think she stays for about a season or two, she drives out the exact same way. And before she leaves Baltimore, she's pulled over and given another ticket. And she was great, incredible, brought a new energy and she matched wits with some of the most established actors in the show's history and was amazing. They tried to push a whole romantic relationship between her and Mike Kellerman's character that never really worked out. And I liked how they two ships passing in the night type of thing, but she was a bright energy and a strong energy. And she was brought in to be the young, hip, attractive one, but the character was so smart and intelligent and clever and witty and strong that she didn't fit in with this popular view of how women should be in 90s television. Just incredible performance. And so that's... Oh, wow. Yeah. I thought for sure you were going to tell me she played a cop. And I guess yeah. she played a cop of a sort. But I imagined her chasing people down an alleyway and jumping them and cuffing them and interrogating them in the room with the two-way mirror. That's what I imagined Michelle Forbes kicking ass at. But she's also a great deliverer of exposition. Great exposition deliverer and great foil for a lot of the cops who just come in and go, hey, Dr. Cox, how's it all going? And she'd match with them and do really great stuff. She was a welcome addition. I was a bit hesitant at the start because I want my original cast. That's all I want. Any new characters are just diluting it. And she grew on me because she's such a great actor, such mm. an incredible actor, so dynamic, so charismatic. I love what they, and I, I really got upset when she left Homicide because she was a wonderful addition to the show, but she's just a jobbing actor. Just, she's done California. She's done Escape from LA. She's just been bit parts in, in Everett. She was in Hunger Games, the second last movie or the last movie is one of the um, soldiers there. And one of her other crucial appearances was in season two of True Blood, which I kind of got into. I dropped off True Blood after season four. I went, that's it. I'm done. But in season two, she plays a character called Marianne, who turns out to be the big bad, the season arc villain, which has become a common thing within genre-based shows. And she plays Marianne, who turns out to be this mythology creature who's a descendant of the Bacchae, who worship Dionysus. And if anyone knows Greek mythology, the Bacchae is about women who worship Dionysus and drink and marry and dance naked in the woods and who go against the conventions of society at the time. And they can be possessed and immune to the power of Dionysus. And so they 
become rabid and they unleash all your deepest desires and all that hedonistic behavior. And she's this incredibly warm, receptive, friendly, opening, supportive person who looks after people who are homeless or lost or... Wow, yeah. that would be a very different color from what we get from Rolaren. And the more but the more you see her, the more her menace comes out and her darkness and her manipulative nature. And wow. it's a great, powerful performance when True Blood was actually doing some really interesting stuff back in its early seasons before it became... I haven't watched anything, any of True Blood, but that sounds worth checking out just it, because yeah. of how different it would be from... Rolaren, who is so guarded, and even when she lets her guard down, she's guarded. She tears up a bit, and it's great. But oh my uh, gosh, when she tears up in that episode, and like even Patrick Stewart is as well. You go, this is really, this is something special. Yeah, and yet there is a sense of never quite letting herself go. Yes. Uh, yeah. She has that that strength and ability to have a hard exterior. But yeah. there's so much more beneath that. So that's why I'm so intrigued by the idea of her as a, a big villain. Yeah. And you don't realize just how she plays it so undertoned and, and plays the emotion as opposed to, like we talked a couple of weeks ago about arch scene chewing villains. Mm. She plays it the other way and it's the best way. To, yeah. I highly recommend anything that she's done. She's she hasn't been the lead in any type of movies or shows, but she's always there. And when she is there, she does incredible stuff. So tell us about her connection with Star Trek and what are some of her highlights? The episode to go back and watch if you want to understand what is behind the powerful scenes in Picard this week is Season 7, Episode 24, Preemptive Strike. It is the last episode before the finale of the series. And you get the sense... They wanted to give a launching point for the Maquis yes. thing into the other series. It was already something that was being tossed back and forth a bit between The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine that were airing at the same time. But perhaps Voyager was already in development and the idea that that would begin with a Maquis crew getting stranded with a Starfleet crew, I think they needed to give one last big push for the Maquis being a going concern. And so this episode is very much about the politics of the Cardassian Federation border yeah. and the fact that the Federation and Cardassians were in an uneasy peace treaty and the Maquis were caught in the middle, especially Bajorans. There were people whose planets had been handed over to the other side as part of a signed piece of paper, and they were choosing not to go along with it to fight for their homes. Is this the first appearance of the Bajorans? No, there was. The Maquis were previously established, I think, earlier in season seven of Star Trek The Next Generation, but this is the last the last big push for it, the last Maquis story in TNG. Right. And Ro, who has by this point become a respected, uh, promoted Starfleet officer, she's now a lieutenant. Yes. And her absence on the ship is explained by her returning at the start of this episode from advanced tactical training at Starfleet Academy, where... Picard had recommended her specifically. She'd gone away. She was the star of her class and she came back. And Admiral Necheyev, who we will remember from several other, like, she's the one who showed up when the really big missions, oh, were, yeah. when Picard needed to be sent on the really high stakes missions. 
she comes on board and she says, we have a mission and it's not for you, Picard. It's for someone on your ship Ooh. and it's for Ro Laren. By this point, Picard and Ro, like they establish in this episode that their trust has gr grown deep enough that he's at times referring to her on her first name basis. He will call her Laren and it sounds like it sounds important and it ends up being important because Ro is sent undercover to join the Maquis. Yes. And ultimately to lead the Maquis into a trap where the Federation can capture them so that they stop attacking the Cardassians. So this is the Federation working for the Cardassians through Ro Laren, who is Bajoran. Yeah. And from the beginning, Picard is like, if you don't feel like you can do this, I would understand. But she says, I wouldn't want to let you down. Fulfilling your trust in me is the main reason I feel like I should take this mission. And it's a very like, they lean real heavily on this mission is the proof of fulfilling Picard's trust in her. And yeah. she goes off and... As happens so many times when you're undercover, you sympathize with the people you're undercover with. Yep. And she she meets a cell leader who reminds her of her father, who tells stories of old Bajor that she had separated herself from her Bajoran identity, but he brought her back and melted her heart. And, uh, and this is all in one episode. All in one episode. She comes back to Picard and says, I'm not sure I can do it. Picard says, tell me now because I can pull you out but it's not going to be good. And she says, I'll go through with it. But ultimately she doesn't. In the final moment, she pulls a phaser on Riker, who's been sent undercover with her to supervise. And Riker is surprisingly understanding. She says, can you tell Picard one last thing for me? And he says, of course, anything. And she says, thank you for trusting me. And she beams off and goes and joins the Maquis. And that is the last we see of her wow. for this episode. There you go. So that's a real big cliffhanger out of the blue. Yeah. And I can you can certainly now see it as a cliffhanger, like an unresolved thread. But in the t at the time, it felt like the end of her story. That yeah. She came. She joined Starfleet. She thought she had found her place. But ultimately, what was going on with the Maquis, the injustice for the Bajoran people was too much for her to take. And it cost her Starfleet career. That felt like an end of, the end of a story. But me. she did find that connection with her culture, which is in yeah. many ways more important, no matter how much Picard says, Starfleet is the only family I need. <laughs> the first episode of hers back in season five, episode three is entitled Ensign Row. And that is the one I talked about where she's working for the bad admiral. And that, yeah, that's what I, that, that was, what I meant earlier was, is, is Roe the first appearance of a Bajoran in Star Trek? That episode, Ensign Roe, is the is when the Bajorans are established. They were called the Bajora back then, and it was like that turn of phrase was quietly sunset. I think it maybe even appeared in some early DS9s. They talked about the world of the Bajora. Ah, yeah. They became the Bajorans eventually. But uh, yeah, this is the first one. Ensign Rowe isn't the first uh, Bajorans we see. There is a terrorist attack by a Bajoran ship, Bajoran freedom fighter. And then Ensign Rowe is brought on to, to be the kind of cultural advisor on the mission to go and try and stop these terrorists. And is it true in my memory that like, it wasn't just the creases in the between the eyes? There was a little bit of with the Bajoran's design, back to the Bajora design, there was a little bit of enhancement to the eyebrows or the some lines there. 
That's interesting that you ask. I don't remember it that way, but certainly that those ne nose ridges did evolve, but I don't remember it being much more extensive. I'm just trying to see if I can find an early photo of her. Yeah, there. I mean, there were some, yeah, the ridges did yeah. go like halfway across the eyebrows. Yes. Early on. So yeah, they, they were a little bigger. Before they just took it all the way and just focused on the ridges on the nose. Yeah. I think that maybe they decided it made them look angry and they wanted they wanted Major Kira not to always look angry. Well, <laughs> she, she, that was certainly her default for the first couple yeah. of... But yeah, there are a couple of other memorable episodes for the character of Ensign Rowe. One of them has a lot of Michelle Forbes and one of them doesn't. The one that doesn't is Rascals. And this is the episode in which Picard, Roe, Guinan, and Keiko are all transformed into their child selves. <laughs> so uh, yeah, they get de-aged. And so it's completely different actors playing these four characters uh, going on a caper. So the young girl who plays Roe does a great job with the character. It is very believably Roe, so much so that... When you asked me, like, what are great moments of Michelle Forbes's row? I was like, oh, I loved when she played herself as a kid. <laughs> She's that good. She <laughs> can de-age herself. Yeah, but that is a good row episode, not necessarily a good Michelle Forbes episode. The last I'll touch on is season five, episode 24, The Next Phase. And much as we were talking about Worf the other week, where I really liked the episode Parallels because it was an episode where Worf was central, but it was not about Worf's culture yeah. or heritage. It was about him as a character in his own right. And Ensign Rose's version of that episode is the next phase in which she and Geordi returning from helping a damaged Romulan ship. They come to the rescue of a Romulan ship whose warp core is malfunctioning. They go aboard as part of a repair party. And when they come back, the transporter fails and they apparently die. Oh, God. But then Ro and Jordy both wake up on the ship and find themselves walking around, but no one can see them. And when they try to touch people and things, they pass through them. And they meet up and Ro is convinced that they have died and that this is... Basically, Bajoran purgatory. Yes. In her religion, before you go to paradise, you have a time haunting the people that you lived with, and you are supposed to use this to make your peace with your departure. You're supposed to tell truths to people, admit how you feel, say goodbye, and then ultimately then you fade away when your business is done. Jordy, as the scientist, the engineer, is like, I'm not having none of it. I can see you. You can see me. The ship is still here. We're still breathing. I'm going to engineering to figure out what's wrong with this. And so it's a beautiful like tension of they both respond to the same situation in opposite ways. And that's very much the Bajoran culture as well. It's very much religion first and everything yeah. uh, secondary. And it is a beautiful opportunity for Ro to tell all these characters what she really feels about them mm. because she is so guarded the rest of the time. But she spends several long speeches telling Riker, telling Picard, what, you know, confessing to them as they can't see or hear her. She like stands in Picard's ready room while he's drinking tea and pours her heart out to him. And it is, it is great stuff, a really great showcase for Michelle Forbes. 
both that that tension of disbelieving the situation and then ultimately Jordy talking around that that they're not actually dead and there is a there is a science problem to be solved <laughs> but before that she uh, she pours her heart out and then is embarrassed by what she has done <laughs> even though she's not dead so yeah i would say if you want if you want one episode to really understand what we saw this week in Picard, it would be preemptive strike, her swan song, and everything you need is right there in that episode. But if you're going to watch a second Rolaren episode, go and watch the next phase. It's it's a pretty typical episode of the week for TNG, but it's a lot more than that for Anson Rowe. Excellent. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And, and I hope I've inspired you to go and watch some of her other work. She's done yeah, great stuff. I have to decide whether to watch Homicide or uh, True, True Blood. There's also, she's still working. Like she was being, she did the Born Identity spinoff TV series, Trenchstone. She was a lead mm -hmm. character in that. She's got a reoccurring role in New Amsterdam, the medical drama. So yeah, she kept on powering through and doing something incredible. And she's still working to this day. Like she hasn't stopped. She's I'm and I'm gonna have to watch some of the stuff if I ever want to see Michelle Forbes again, apparently. Like I keep forgetting that she dies at the end of this one. And then I remember and it hurts all over again. <laughs> she went out in fitting form. She made the difference this episode. She she closed the doors that needed to be closed, and then she heroically flew that ship into the engine of the Intrepid. So well done to giving a character their due before killing them off. Nevertheless, it is heartbreaking. Having been given a taste of what more Rolaren could be, to now know that we're not going to get that. Well, that's very sad. That's the thing, isn't it? Because you you'd feel cheated if it was one of the you know the originals coming. Even if it was Will Wheaton coming back, yeah, it comes back, sacrifice him. You'd feel cheated. You go, no, nah, yeah. that's wrong. But with Rolaren, you're there going. You have a focus on her for the A story of this part has that resolution, has that arc, and does the ultimate sacrifice, but they're only in eight episodes. So you go, you still feel upset and heartbroken, but you're there going, okay, they came back, they went out like a boss, and that's not something to be really feels like short, short changed on. But I'm angry with those changelings now. I Up until this point, I was like, maybe they're just misunderstood. No. Nah. But now it's personal. They've taken Red Laren out. Yeah, just send Jack over and just sort them all out. But it is good because he's a stubborn Chicago bastard. But whenever Shaw finally, yeah, it's it, they play this like a book with Shaw. They set him up as the bad guy. You learn to love him, even though he's still spiky. He doesn't change completely. He's still a spiky prick. But I'm going to step outside so that the three of you can get your bullshit story straight. <laughs> and then at the end goes, does go, look Shaw. They're powering up. They're going to shoot us. It goes, oh, now we better get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but they were going to arrest you. They're going to arrest you. You're going to I really wanted to see that. <laughs> yeah. Another really good episode. A great little surprise return of a character. And now we move forward into those pieces finally coming together. Now we've got Riker and Picard teaming up with Worf. Let's get them in the same space now. Let's. It feels like we're primed for storming Daystrom Station next episode. I think that's amazing. And they are setting up like a heist. They're going, this is the, the AI system. You've got to break this code. I'm expecting the Ocean's Eleven music to kick in. Do, 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 yeah. do. Then maybe they'll have their own bit of butter bing, butter bang episode. <laughs> I said, why are you dressing in a tuxedo? Why are you dressing up in a tuxedo? Forget about it. Let's walk in slow motion along a promenade. <laughs> 
I'm going to walk in slow motion until next week's episode. Looking forward to it. Can't wait to see what happens in episode six. Yeah, we're more than halfway now, Rob. We are. This is traditionally where it all falls apart. With Picard. <laughs>